Welcome everybody to the June 3rd, 2022 edition of Legal Tech Week, the show in which we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation uh, and whatnot uh, from the past week. And uh, our uh, our panel's a little bit small today. We might have one more joining us. We'll see, uh, depending on uh, what happens with uh, that person's computer <laughs> computer equipment over the next few minutes. Uh, but uh, we've got uh, plenty to talk about today. And uh, not to mention, it is the official Nikki Black birthday edition of the show. So happy birthday, Nikki Black. Thank you. And uh, actually, and, and Victor, you had kind of a milestone this week too regarding your book, right? Is that is you get? Yeah, it, it, no, it's just, it was it, it's one of those made up milestones that only matter to me. But uh, yeah, it, it, it hit 500, 500 libraries worldwide. So I was like, oh, okay, five hundred. That's a nice round number. So yeah. And what's the book? Uh, it's uh, Nick, uh, it's called Nixon in New York. It's uh, a look at Richard Nixon's career in uh, big law and how it prepared him for uh, winning the White House in nineteen sixty eight. A not a not a legal tech tome, <laughs> uh, but no, not really. I, I, I mean, you know, there there was some technical stuff involving Nixon toward toward the uh, end of his career in the White House, but uh, that isn't quite covered by uh, by the book. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of you listening to the show already know who we are, but I'll uh, we'll do the introductions anyway. I'm Bob Ambrogi, and I ha have the blog uh, Law Sites and uh, the podcast law next in our legal tech directory called the law next legal tech directory and uh nikki you want to kick it off today sure i am nikki black i'm the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software uh, i write legal tech articles for uh at least regular ones for aba journal above the law the daily record here in rochester and um i sometimes also write for the my case blog and I'm <clears throat> recovering from COVID, so don't mind me if I cough a little bit occasionally. Doing my best here. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you're feeling you're you've, you've, you're you're kind of on the on the tail end of recovering, right? You've been you've been I better. For, yeah, good. And good. I think it was my first time getting it. Hopefully, my last knock on not your wood right now. Wood. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, we'll we'll see after uh, after the summer. You're going to go to any of the summer conferences? We'll see what happens then. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, and uh, and uh, Victor, we already know who you are, but you can introduce yourself anyway. Uh, Victor Lee, I am assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal. I handle business of law and technology. Happy birthday, Nikki. Uh, glad, you know, glad, glad you're feeling better. Hopefully, you know, you'll recover quickly enough. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. And, uh, you know, um, um, Short. Uh, I mean, well, well, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a short. It's a small show as far as panelists, but we have, we have a lot to cover. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And Steve. Hi, Steve Embry. I um, publish, write, clean up after, take <laughs> care of, <laughs> you name it. The blog tech law crossroads. Uh, prior to that, I was a practicing lawyer with a big law firm for a number of years, and I'm chair elect and soon to be chair of the ABA law practice division for the upcoming bar year. That's exciting. And uh, Gino Grady may be joining us. She was scheduled to be here and something had actually did have something come up at the last minute. Uh, and but I think she's going to join in late, hopefully. And uh, she's also having some computer problems. So we'll see how that all works out. Joe Patrice is on vacation. Zach Warren is uh, off in the, the hinterlands of Honduras or Bolivia, or is he Bolivia rather? 
and uh, uh, and and won't be joining us today. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff happened this week, actually. And uh, Nikki, since it is your birthday, I think you I think you uh, get dibs on going first. Sounds good. And I just added a second. Um, I actually wrote two things. I only had one in the doc initially, but I added a second one since we're short on people in case we had extra time. And that the second one is near and dear to my heart. It's uh, my mentor died and I wrote a piece about him. Um, but the one that I wrote, um, put in there that's legal tech related is my ABA journal column from May. And that was about, um, top trial, uh, top trial presentation tools. Um, and the reason that I wrote that was my past two articles for the ABA journal were, um, about uh, remote tools to facilitate uh, depositions and remote tools to uh, uh, tools to facilitate remote trials. And um, as a result of those, I, I sometimes get emails from people who read my articles that are uh, asking my opinion on different types of technology. And someone emailed me and wondered if I'd written about trial presentation tools. And I actually never have for the ABA journal. I have for other outlets. Um, and I figured a lot has changed since I last wrote about it and it was time to um, write a piece on it. So that's what I wrote about in May. And um, there are some <coughs> some new ones. For a long time, TrialPad kind of uh, had cornered the market other than the mainstays that were premise-based, which I also talk about in the article. Um, but there's a couple of other new additions that have been added to the mix since I last looked. And there was even one that was in beta that hasn't quite been released. But after I wrote the article, um, I think it was the CEO emailed me and said they were close to being released and it'd be in the app store soon. That was iLitigate, I think. But um, there's a bunch of interesting tools available for um, people that want to have actually like trial presentation tools. Um, so definitely take a look at the article. I sort of went through um, the ones that started with um, iPad apps and then moved into, there are some that are actually like premises-based tools, but one of them had an iPad app. I think it's called Exhibit A, had an iPad app available so that you could present from the iPad app rather than the computer, which tends to be a little bit more intuitive when you're in court trying to throw exhibits up onto the screen. So that was kind of cool that they had that sort of uh, integration between those two different um, operating systems, uh, if you will. And uh, then I also just threw in the mainstays, which were um, Q and what is the other one? Uh, I should know it because it's been around forever. Um, <clears throat> trial director, trial director, trial director. Yeah. I mean, those are the premises based ones that <coughs> people have been using for years, but they typically do require someone with knowledge of the software to set it up and teach you how to use it. And it's a lot more complex and quite frankly, a lot more costly. So typically only larger firms tend to use those. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not sure how much there is. There's not a lot of debate. I don't think about this particular article, but it's got a lot of useful information. And so I thought it was, uh, definitely worth highlighting this yeah. this this is a really it's actually a subject nikki that's that's near and dear to my heart i think as most of you know i'm on a faculty of a uh, defense trial lawyers group and we actually have hosted two and a half day uh, intensive training uh, on trial presentation technology and um where people are get acquainted with the technology then give presentations and um you know with the, the thing that we typically stress is the ability to use a, a iPad uh, 
in the courtroom and not have somebody sitting in the hot seat where you have to say, uh, can you pull up that exhibit? No, 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 not that one. No, no, the other one. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff is, is quite remarkable. And um, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed the article. Uh, I, I think you, you hit all the highlights and most of the things that, uh, that we cover. We, we, we do stress the iPad and the, and the lit software tools because, you know, we have people of, um, you know, various experience levels. And the, the easiest way we found to get people used to technology in the courtroom is, is the lit software trial pad stuff because it's so intuitive. And the other thing we always tell people is that, you know, the, the course is entitled, you know, trial technology, trial presentation technology, but really all of those tools can be used for any presentation, whether it's to a mediator or, uh, to a client or what have you. And you know, it really doesn't matter whether you try cases all the time or never try cases. I mean, it's just the, the technology and the skills and using them are pretty applicable, you know, for, for just about any lawyer, because we all get presentations as lawyers, right? Whether it's, whether you're a tax lawyer or a M&A lawyer or what have you, and uh, being able to convey information that, in a way that the technology enables is pretty critical. So thanks for writing it. I enjoyed it. So, so you were inspired by somebody uh, asking you about this and not by the Johnny Depp trial. Is that right? <laughs> no, but I did manage to uh, tie that in at the beginning because yeah, I saw that, not, yeah. right? right? But it was that trial was super interesting because it was the, you know, not only was it televised, which doesn't, you know, it only happens sometimes, but there were witnesses. There was like a witness driving in his car while he was testifying, you know, um, there were uh, witnesses that had been had pre-recorded testimony. There were witnesses appearing um, live remotely, and then there were live witnesses. So it was really interesting to see all those different elements in a single trial that not to mention had all like the salaciousness of like celebrities and, you know, the, you know, it just had so much entertainment value on top of it. Uh, and I think actually there's a segue, right? There is a segue because, yeah, as, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Going for that segue because, as it happens, that's Bob's Vic, job. Vic, Victor's pick of the, yeah, that's right. Come on. What am I going to do here if you keep taking away my segues? Uh, but yeah, Victor, Victor uh, has a piece uh, or, or uh, points to a piece this week uh, that's uh, very relevant to that. Victor, you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, I guess before, before we start, just like one last thing about yeah. Vicky's piece. Yeah. Uh, not to toot my own horn, I edited it, and uh, I didn't do much on it because her pieces are always very well written and always fact-checked fact and everything, so it, we don't have to do that much. But what I, what I liked about it was it kind of took me back to when I first started practicing, and like when we would, when we would prosecute DUI cases, uh, you know, drunk driving cases, um, we would have to wheel, because uh, our, 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 uh, our office was like kind of down the street from the, from the courthouse. So we we had we had three of those giant uh, of, of those big those old like TVs like box TVs uh, with like you know the the vacuum tubes and that kind of stuff and they were on like those um, those wheelie things that you you have in school like if you have like a school uh, presentation or whatnot they would you have like this big metal like this big metal great thing that you put the TV on top of so people could see it and then we would have to wheel it all the way <laughs> well first we had to sign we had to sign it out then we'd have to wheel it up to uh to, to the court to the courthouse. And uh, and if we didn't bring it, then we couldn't we couldn't play our tapes, uh, our our, our DOE tapes. So uh, the idea that now that there's a software that would that would have allowed us to do it like more easily without doing all that, well, that 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 actually made me very happy. Um, yeah. but, and, before you know, we before we leave that point, just real quick, this one other observation that that I, I have had uh, in teaching this course is that um, 
when when you get lawyers to start using trial technology, they they will take the story that they want to tell and then begin melding the technology into it that they now know how to use a little bit to enhance the story that they want to they want to present, right? Instead of a lot of times, you know, if you've got somebody in a hot seat, you sort of like, oh, this is a nice bell and whistle. So I'll I'll tailor my story to so I can use this bell and whistle. And it it works out so much better the other way. Uh, and and the presentations become a lot more compelling. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Victor. I was just thinking no, about sorry. that as you were talking. Yeah, <laughs> well, especially for like like for, for like the 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 Dewey cases that we would try. It's just like very often, like, you know, like just based on the video, if the guy was falling over and like couldn't couldn't walk a straight line or whatnot, then it's like, all right, slam dunk, we're done. You know, so, so, you know, so, so, it, 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 like, so, like, yeah, it, it really did kind of add a lot to our, to our case if we had that element. But then if, obviously, if, if the person looked good and the person didn't look, you know, like, like they were falling over or whatnot, then it made our job a lot, e a lot harder. So, yeah, it's one of things where it's like, it, it, you know, technology definitely kind of exposes. You know, it definitely shines a light on 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 you in a different way, and like you can either kind of rise to it or or or, or kind of shrink from it. So it's interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I guess the, the story that I um, that I picked was just it was just obviously with the, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, trial uh, coming to a conclusion this week. Um, I, I just thought it was interesting how you know, and I've been looking at this for a while, just kind of like thinking about thinking about this, just kind of like looking at how. I don't know if this was the first trial that was extensively covered by TikTok, but it was probably the biggest one. I think that's probably safe to say. And, you know, obviously, you know, people who are familiar with TikTok, they understand, you know, like, like, like Nikki, obviously, they understand that, like, you know, taking those short clips uh, and playing them and kind of, and, and then, and then, you know, um, and then, you know, if you click on one, then it'll, it'll show you more and more like that. So it's very easy to kind of fall down the rabbit hole, like uh, based on the videos that you pick and the videos that you look at and the videos that you, that you interact with and whatnot. So very often they can end up kind of reinforcing what you already believe or, you know, um, convincing you of something that people want you to believe and whatnot. And so it was interesting sort of how, 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 how the trial unfolded on TikTok because you had, you know, these short clips of like, you know, either Johnny Depp looking good on the stand or Amber Heard looking bad on the stand or vice versa. But usually it was, John, it was. Usually it was the first way. Yeah, the former. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or you had, you know, um, um, I think you know there, there was one of Johnny Depp's lawyers that became sort of an internet sensation because of some of the some of some of the really like kind of um, um, uh, the things that she was doing on cross examination or during closing and whatnot. And so it's very easy to kind of not only take a short clip of something and take it out of context and you know make it reinforce sort of like your own point of view, uh, but then kind of you know delivering more and more of that kind of content and, 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 and getting more people to kind of see things the way you do. And, and it's just how sort of how TikTok works and, and, and it kind of adds the whole kind of debate about whether or not, whether or not TikTok is, is, you know, is, um, you know, helping to, um, you know, create more disinformation or, you know, whether it's going to um, affect trials down the line. So I thought it was very interesting sort of like just how, how, how that trial just unfolded on social media and how the role of TikTok in, in, in kind of, you know, influencing where people stood on on the on the matter, and plus, obviously, then you know, there's always uh, the article goes into like you know all the fake all the fake accounts and all the bots that started like kind of getting on it too. So there's all kinds of things going on. I think it's going to be a like not all trials are going to have this. I mean, you know, not all not all people care about trials this much. Um, but for like big big trials like celebrity trials, you know, uh, where there's a lot of interest, like I could absolutely see it kind of you know swaying things, you know, 
you know, kind of making people see things a certain way, or maybe even like disregarding disregarding certain facts. So it, it's definitely an interesting interesting issue and something that 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 could have a huge that could that could play a huge role in things down the line. What if there had been TikTok during the OJ trial? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, could you imagine that the the, the glove moment, like going viral like that? I mean, or the uh, or um, or uh, you know the you know uh, the if if it doesn't fade, you must acquit thing. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, like 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 during OJ or during the Menendez trial or. Yeah. During you know um, all, all kinds of trials, like 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 it, it could have played a huge role in kind of swaying people one way one way or the other, and you know and obviously then also other issues involving the whole Amber Heard Johnny Depp thing that <laughs> that 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 has shone a light on, and yeah. Um, and and yeah it it, 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 it it was it was very interesting just sort of like you know how it how how it just exploded. Like I mean I knew people were interested in this in in, in the trial, but you know honestly like a like a defamation trial like it you wouldn't think it would be that be that interesting all of a sudden because really just like it was like what like five or six statements that were at issue you know there, there were no criminal consequences there were no you know so it's really just a matter of like one rich person taking on another rich person to see who has to pay the other one you know it yeah. wasn't just Mo rich though go ahead moving piles of money yeah. <laughs> I, I thought the, the other interesting thing about that article uh it, it was or what, what struck me as kind of the most interesting thing about the article was the number of fake social yeah. media accounts that were commenting or or you know uh, putting stuff out there about this case and i don't i don't think you can correct me if i'm wrong Victor, that the article has really has any clue as to suggest as any clue as to where these social media accounts were coming from or what the origin was and and, and for fear of of, of getting uh, you know, sued myself by some famous celebrity. I'm not going to suggest who might have been behind them, but you kind of have to kind of wonder whether, in some ways, that if 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 TikTok becomes a significant element in trials, does that then mean that the trial teams start thinking about how do we, you know, what's our TikTok strategy and how do we influence that strategy? I'm sure they're probably already thinking about well, that. Well, I read I read I'm articles sorry. that said that. It, um, was a PR campaign, you know, and that that's why there were the bots and that's why there was so much activity and that's why it was so slanted, you know, in terms of what was actually being posted. So, but then I also see very real people like lawyers on my Facebook feed that I've known for a long time, known, you know, on Facebook that are posting some very slanted stuff that seem very invested in the trial as well. So I, they certainly were not all bots, but, but that PR campaign was very successful because even I, all I saw was pro Johnny Depp stuff. Like I didn't, I don't think I saw anything pro Amber Heard anywhere ever. And then yeah. Johnny Depp uh, stuff was funny. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it does raise sort of a concern, um, you know, about, about what this does. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we've all tried cases and we know that, you know, you can create these little snippets of testimony and poem and, you know, it looks like somebody is really guilty or really not guilty. But when you sit through two weeks of trial as a juror, listening to all the evidence, the story begins to look differently. And and yet when the verdict comes down, you have this, this mass of people out there who just think the jury got it all wrong. I mean, they're just, they're a bunch of idiots. They, how could they possibly have reached this conclusion and finding? Um, and so, you know, I'm, I always try to caution people when they say that's when you, you didn't sit through two weeks of testimony. So you, you really aren't in a position to say, but it, it does, it does worry me a little bit that sort of this, but doing these kinds of things, it's unavoidable that it, the net result may be a sort of a, a westing of our respect of the 
of the jury system. Um, and anyway, when when we have the case of Bobby Ambrosia, we <laughs> just being sued for defamation. I'm sure we can find somebody to help you out with representation. Bobby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I expect uh, this this full panel of people to represent. Well, <laughs> you're in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but I want Joe doing the closing argument. That's all I can say. I'm sorry. <laughs> with a glass of bourbon. <laughs> with a glass of bourbon, exactly. Um, all right. Um, where do we go from there? Uh, well, well, there's not too many people that. left to go. Oh, yeah, we could talk about your mentor. Yeah. Well, because talking about trials and stories that that was Ed was a litigator. And so that's why I sort of wanted to throw it in there. He wrote um, Ed was my parents friend. And I talk about in the article how growing up in a med, uh, feel, uh, house with medical professionals, all I heard was just disgusting stories at dinner, like either really boring or really gross. Like there was no in between. And I was super unimpressed with the medical field and the storytelling potential. But then my parents' friend, Ed Menken, had all these great stories. And he was this uh, criminal defense lawyer in Rochester or Syracuse that um, was really renowned. And um, I loved his stories and I decided I wanted to be a lawyer in part because what he did seemed so interesting. And he really took me under my wing, uh, under his wing and, um, you know, I used to shadow him some days, a couple times in high school, and I would go to his office to get a sense of like what happens. And uh, he helped me get an internship in the U.S. Attorney's Office when I was in high school. I second chaired a federal trial with him when I was in law school, and it was really a great experience. It was a um, civil rights trial on behalf of a prisoner that Ed had taken pro bono. Did a lot of pro bono work. He was just a wonderful guy. Um, he died at 78 of cancer, and his funeral was in Syracuse and um, the DA spoke like he had all these everyone called him Eddie I mean Ed was just wonderful but he loved telling stories and that's what made him such a great trial attorney and he wrote two memoirs because of course Ed wrote two memoirs not just one and they're all about um, his you know his hits they're his um, trial his stories from the trenches you know he's talking about some of his most famous and most interesting cases and he goes through like the entire case and if you can just, if you knew Ed, you can actually hear him telling these stories. And you can actually hear him tell these stories because in addition to these memoirs, I interviewed him for um, a My Case podcast about seven or eight years ago. And um, I linked to that in my article too. But he um, tells some of those stories. And if you, he, But you, know, you can either read his books for the entertainment value or to learn what it's like to be a criminal defense attorney or also just to get some of the best advice on how to tell a story and what juries are really looking for and how to deal with difficult prosecutors and how to deal with clients and just sort of the real life things that happens. He always talks about Sal, which is one of his um, lawyer friends, but Sal was always like getting indicted by the feds because he would just, I don't know, got a little too close to his friends, his clients sometimes and would get in trouble because he would get in these schemes with his clients, but he was also this really good criminal defense lawyer. But um, at his funeral, the district attorney for, Onondaga County was there and one of the uh, judges who was also a good friend of his from law school and like they all like teared up which was moving because you don't usually see um, people at that stature tear up in public like that um, and they all call him Eddie because that's what everyone called him except for me because he was Mr. Mankin and then he was Ed but I never felt super comfortable calling him Eddie so but you know the, he was all about the stories and telling stories the right way and that's a big part of what his um, books were his memoirs were about so um, I definitely recommend you if you're interested at all in becoming a criminal defense lawyer or just reading uh, sort of rumple stories, but with a modern twist, 
you know, the, his memoirs are great for that. So, and I'll miss him. It's really sad. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. You're, sorry for your loss. And uh, he sounds like an amazing guy. He was. Uh, <laughs> we could want uh, that like Debbie Downer. Now what? <laughs> I, I know. I, and I don't even have any bourbon here. Um, well, I probably, uh, when you're, when you're feeling down, nothing better to talk about than, uh, than criminal justice algorithms, uh, <laughs> which, which I'm, fortunately, I'm, fortunately I'm just, Steve has just happens to have a story about that. So I'm, I was hoping you were going to use the amazing gas seg segue, but anyway, not your best segue, Bob. I, 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 uh, <laughs> well, what I meant uh, is there's no cheerier person on this panel than Steve Embry who can bring us out of this slump. So I, I, I thought this was, uh, this was kind of fascinating to me on, still trying to get my head around it, but um, American Civil Liberties Union came out with a commentary and the title of it is, what if algorithms worked for accused people instead of against them? And the notion here is they, I mean, we've all heard of the use of uh, artificial intelligence and data analytics to try to predict uh, those that pose a risk uh, to the public. Uh, and so you can run the analytics and determine that, you know, these, this kind of person is more likely to skip town or this kind of person is more likely to commit another crime if he or she is uh, let loose. And the net result of that, of course, is given the inherent bias in the data, you know, you get statistics like, you know, black people getting sentences that are 19 almost 20 times longer than, than white people. Uh, so what the ACLU, ACLU did uh, in conjunction with Carnegie Mellon and, and Penn, University of Pennsylvania, is they, they sort of flipped the question and they said, you know, let's ask what risk the system poses to the accused and try to determine if we can, if we can use the data to show that a person, a particular person falls into a group that that is likely to get disproportionately exaggerated sentences or, uh, or not be uh, allowed any sort of pretrial release. Um, and as it turns out, at least according to the, to the study and the commentary, which, which they, they say was peer reviewed, that, that that's possible to do, that you can create this set of data to, to, to show that a person with these, with this age group and this this uh, history and these sorts of things, will fall into a group that has has traditionally received greater sentences. And um, you know, the, from that, you could you could enable uh, public defenders or the whoever is defending or the accused themselves to be able to to begin arguing against sort of the, the lengthy sentence that might be imposed or, or any other pretrial conditions that might be imposed and actually have some data to, to, to back it up, um, which, you know, I, who knows how far that'll get you, but it's certainly better than nothing. And, you know, it also sort of counterbalances, it seemed to me, this, this notion that let's use data to, to, to determine the risk that this person poses and sort of flips it on its head and said, well, there's another policy concern and that's the impact uh, of, of the system on the person uh, that uh, not only involves the sentencing and not only involves pretrial procedures, but also the impact down the road. Um, and so there's, there's that aspect that they, the, the article also cites the something called the first step act, which I didn't know existed, but 
it allows uh, federal courts to to look at sentencing reductions where there's quote extraordinary and compelling circumstances unquote and the, the commentary was saying well, this kind of data could be helpful now Bob you may remember at, at tech show the keynote from the from the African-American woman who uh, who was who was in prison for a very long time when the charge against her was conspiring with the with a drug dealer, and the, the drug dealer actually got no time, partly because he was killed before he got to trial. But but she ended up with a sentence that was you know almost as long as uh, and maybe longer than he would have received. And fortunately, her sentence was commuted. Um, but you know, it's a prime example. And, and that was the fine, you know another thing that the commentary pointed out that this this kind of information and data could be very helpful in in trying to to get some clemency decisions from the executive branch that might not be available or might not be uh, as as easily to justify without this kind of data. So I, I thought it was it was interesting on a whole on a couple of rounds. One because of the impact on the criminal justice system, but but also because it 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 I thought it was interesting that they actually ask a different question of the data than the standard question and got a really meaningful kind of kind of result, which goes to show you that you know, it's a lot of what you do with data depends on the question you want to ask from the data. So I thought it was, it, to me, it was, it was pretty interesting, even though I have no criminal law experience. And certainly appreciate, Nikki, your, your thoughts on it, because I know you have. But uh, seemed, it seemed to be to be a useful exercise and maybe a useful tool that could be developed. I mean, I tend to be cynical about it. It may be a useful tool and a useful a theory of how it could be used, but I'm a little bit cynical about the fact that it would actually be used in that way because the um, criminal justice system uh, generally does not um, uh, operate in favor of the defendants, you know. And so um, it's I, I, I love that the ACLU is doing this because at least they're trying to show that you can use this data in a way that um, is beneficial. And, may, and if nothing else, it, it arms the criminal defense attorneys with data to start creating records that could hopefully assist um, on appeal or just start creating more trends to show that, you know, we're making these arguments, it's not making a difference. And maybe it can eventually rise to like some sort of constitutional level claim. I, I mean, I have clearly have not thought this through, but um, I just tend to be so cynical about the criminal justice system though, because it's pretty rare that um, when, uh, if things can go, uh, be used for or against, or in inferences can be made for or against the defendant, they tend to, live, almost always things seem to go against the defendant's interests <laughs> in any given case. So, um, but I think it's important to go through these exercises and to have these studies and at least posit ways that you can um, use these tools in ways that would be beneficial to actually seeking justice. But sometimes I feel like the criminal justice system does not always do that uh, as a whole. <laughs> Or maybe maybe it doesn't ever do that. Maybe it's better <laughs> starting starting to wonder about that myself. Yeah, and I think that's right. But you know, again, it's it's like you say, it's it's at least a start. It's something, and um, you know, who knows? The more questions we ask, the more things we push our data to do. Maybe the more information and the more light that can be shed on you know bad practices, unfair practices. Uh, practices that are not consistent with with justice um, that weren't there before. So I thought I thought it was kind of kudos to those guys for for coming up with this approach to, to try to do something from a from an analytical data standpoint that 
you know, has, has, has often been just anecdotal as opposed to anything else. Well, yeah, and I, I think that the, one of the other things the ACLU did, it was a number of years ago, but where they, uh, the, this particular study I'm thinking of, I felt it was more impactful because it showed the weaknesses in the AI versus trying to show ways you can use it differently, which was the facial recognition AI Amazons. I think it was 2017, but where they ran Congress that. through it and it identified the vast majority of people of color that were members of Congress as potential criminals because it said they matched, um, uh, had uh, mug shots in the systems. So, I mean, that one was just so striking, you know, mm -hmm. clearly mm -hmm. this is broken if it's, um, and it's only misidentifying the people of color members of Congress, you know? So um, that one just, that type of attack seems to me to be the most effective way, like almost an attack rather than this, well, you could use it another way. Cause I feel like most people that are prosecution oriented are like, yeah, well we could, we're not going to <laughs> perfectly happy the way we are, you know, yeah. versus um, damning evidence that shows that something that they're relying on. Uh, it's easier to pick that apart in court. And I think, and be like this facial recognition te uh, technology is faulty and broken. It doesn't work and inherently biased. And I think sometimes that's an easier argument to make to get a piece of evidence knocked out rather than changing an entire policy almost. Uh, I'm not sure if that, I'm not stating it quite as clearly as I could, I don't think, but um, but I think it's important work that the ACLU does to kind of challenge technology in general and suggest these alternate ways of using it. Yeah, and I, I could think of situations where, you know, I mean, public defenders and my son-in-law is a public defender. So, um, you know, I said I'm kind of, kind of sympathetic to the situations that they often find themselves in, but, you know, it, you know, now when there's a plea bargain to be to be put on the table, if you had data like this, you could say, well, no, I, why would I agree with that? Because that's five times a harsher sentence than other people get. And so it at least gives you some leverage, I guess, that that maybe you would not have had before, whether it does you any good or not. I don't know. But um, because I've never been in that situation uh, to, to. Well, actually, I did. I, I did have a criminal appointment when I was right out of law school that, you know, was completely baffling to me and <laughs> was glad when somebody stepped in to help me. But uh, um, so, like, yeah. One thing that Ed talks about in his book, in one of the stories that he tells is he had a client who the case against the, the client in, that was actually being tried was not super egregious, wasn't a particularly strong case, but the prosecutor had decided he was a bad guy. And this, I remember prosecutors telling me this, well, he's a bad guy. I don't care if the offers, I don't care if the case sucks the bad guy we want to get him off the street like when they have that mentality about um mm -hmm. defendants they look at their record they make a decision about them whether they're a bad guy or not or whether they maybe have some rehabilitative potential really rehabilitative but uh and once they decide they're a bad guy forget about it like they don't care if they have a crappy case they know that statistically if they try a case there's a better chance than not that they're going to get a conviction because the cards always fall in their favor and so that's where it you know that's the problem with being a public defender and saying, well, statistically, I mean, you absolutely can make the argument. I think you should when you're trying to plea bargain. But when you like statistically, that's a really, you know, you're being racist. You know, white guy wouldn't get this. Like, I don't want to talk about statistics or, you know, generalities. I'm talking about this guy and this guy's a bad guy, you know, and they just mm -hmm. go down this whole path. And um, so that's sometimes where the difficulty comes in. They don't they don't care about rat reason. They care about getting the bad guy off the street. Yeah, the, getting so, the conviction. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, Victor, are you trying to say something? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. 
it's not uh, victor were you trying to say something? i thought you i saw you trying to say something there oh well no i mean it's just uh well you know as a former prosecutor uh <laughs> but uh no 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 it, it's <laughs> It's, Except um, for you, of course. No, we did it all the time. It's just kind of like if if someone had if someone had a rap sheet that looked more like a book than a sheet, then it gets to the point where you're just kind of like, well, you know, just we can't, you know, we, we like we wouldn't be allowed to even offer a deal because it's kind of like, well, either this guy goes away for the max or we didn't do our job. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I can see both I can see both sides of that argument, because on the one hand, maybe this guy really is a bad guy and he you know, is going to keep, he is, he is going to keep, or he or she is going to keep, um, you know, getting arrested, doing, you know, breaking the law, you know, hurting people or whatnot. Uh, but then also it's kind of like, well, okay, but then why? Like, why is this person um, always in the position where, you know, um, you know, they feel like that this is what they have to do in order to either, you know, make ends meet or support themselves or whatnot. And it's just, I think just, you know, anytime you have, you know, data, that comes out that challenges sort of like the um, just the conventional wisdom of what a lot of people believe. Cause like, what, what's the conventional wisdom about, about these, you know, mandatory minimums and, and, you know, like these long sentences and whatnot, right. It's kind of like, well, you know, the argument is, well, they, 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 they impact, you know, uh, they impact certain people um, more harshly or, you know, just it's not, not applied uh, uniformly and whatnot. And so then people who are in favor of them or, or people who don't want to, you know, see any kind of meaningful reform, they just say, well, the reason why these people are the ones that are getting the census is because they're, they're doing the crimes. And, it's, and, 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 and it becomes a very simple kind of answer for them. Like, well, they shouldn't have broken the law. They shouldn't have done A, B, and C. Otherwise, they wouldn't be serving this much time in jail. And, you know, anytime you can kind of, you know, same thing with, with, with the predictive policing. It's like, oh, well, we send the police where, where there's the most crime. And so what, where do they end up, usually end up sending the police to, 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 to neighborhoods overrun by minorities. And so mm-hmm. anytime you have, you know, studies that can kind of challenge those kind of assertions, it, it, it's a good thing because that way it forces people to kind of get out of that method of thinking a little bit. Even if, even if they end up just saying, like, oh, well, forget it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to that study. I'm not going to regard it because I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not this, this, this. But you know, ultimately, you know, like the more the more data comes out that that, that shows this kind of stuff, it's, you know, it, 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 it can only it can only help. It can only, you know, um, especially especially the people in, in power that'll that'll kind of force them to kind of uh, look at things a certain way. Because you know, because yeah, because that mentality with with, with with the prosecutor's office is still very strong. This idea of well, you know, I can't let this person get out on my watch, and as long as I do what I think I have to do, then I can then then I can at least face the voters in four years and be like, well, hey, you know. We 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 put we put so and so away. We tried to put this person away, and you know uh, we did our best, and, and and that's that. You know. Yeah, I, I I'm like Steve. I haven't done. I've hardly done any criminal work in my in in my life, but uh, I, I've done a little bit only because I used to have to when I was practiced in the Virgin Islands, where every lawyer had to take criminal appointments, uh, whether you were a criminal lawyer or not, which wasn't always the best thing for the defendant, but uh, uh, that was the case. But. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the, the at sort of the the baseline, the job of a criminal defense lawyer is to introduce doubt into the government's case. And it, it sounds like by kind of flipping the algorithms in this way, that the way the ACLU article uh, talks about, uh, that can be a powerful tool for introducing some doubt uh, around some issues in a case. It, it does. It, I don't. It doesn't necessarily have to become. Be something that turns out to be decisive in the case, or that you know actually sways 
anybody's uh, ultimate decision in a case, but if you can at least get the judge or maybe the jury thinking a little bit uh, about, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there is a, a bias in the other direction here or something like that, that, uh, that, that can end up being, uh, to the great advantage of, of a criminal defendant uh, in a case. So I think it's a really interesting article. Um, all right, well, I will uh, turn next to myself uh, <laughs> and uh, talk about something I wrote about this week. There was actually a lot of interesting stuff this week. Oh, actually, one other point I wanted to mention, just because uh, Nikki alluded to facial recognition, uh, if any, if you, if you didn't read uh, Kashmir Hill's uh, story in the New York Times Magazine this past Sunday on this new face search engine called Pim Eyes, uh, read it because it's really scary. Uh, I mean, it's it's alarmingly accurate and and it's available to anybody uh, to go out and find. It, basically, it it's she's her her premise is that this finds photos that nobody else is finding out there uh, and that is you know, incredibly accurate uh, you know even if you post a photo of somebody wearing you know a, a covid mask or something it can still pick out their facial features and find related photos and uh, uh, really scary technology anyway that's not what i wrote about what i wrote about was uh brief catch uh which uh, i've written about before brief catch is one of these legal editing uh programs out there. It's a Microsoft Word add-in. Uh, and uh, in in the past, it, I, I've written reviews a couple of times in which I've taken some Supreme Court opinions and run them through some of these various editing programs. I've done it with WordRake, and I've done it with Perfectit, which is uh, more of a proofreading tool than a style tool. Uh, and uh, and I'd done it before with Briefcatch. Briefcatch had just come out with its all new and improved version three just a few weeks ago, and I'd been kind of looking for uh, a case to do it with, give it, uh, kind of run it through Briefcatch and, and see what uh, what I'd find. So, with so much attention being paid, justifiably, of course, to to uh, this this leaked uh, opinion. From the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, I, I I decided to try it. I was a little uncertain whether I should, only because it's obviously such a such a hyper controversial opinion, and and it's such an emotional one for so many people. Uh, but uh, you know, it, my 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 reasoning was ultimately that uh, well, a it would be just interesting to see how software like this works in a in a case like that, and. Also that, you know, ultimately a lot of the cases that lawyers are going to want editing help with are cases that are involving very controversial or, or very difficult issues. Uh, and, you know, you could argue that's that's when they most need the help of a good of a good editor, whether it's software or uh, or a colleague down the hall. Um, but uh, so I so I ran the, the uh, uh, case, uh, I downloaded the uh, the PDF from Politico, which is the one I'd gotten the leaked uh, opinion and cleaned it up a little because it had been a scan and uh, Adobe didn't convert it to Word all that easily, but ran it through. And, and uh, so it was kind of interesting to see what happened. I mean, I think, you know, the, the kind of the uh, most, um, uh, what, what, what struck me the most is is kind of the fact that this is just 
This is just software. And here you have this opinion that you know is such a hot button opinion for so many people that just, just about anybody who reads this opinion, no matter where you stand on this issue, you're going to have a strong emotional issue. Uh, but brief catch is just, it's just software and it, it has no emotional reaction to the opinion. It just looks at it uh, with this sort of cold uh, objectivity that's a, a little bit uh, almost offset, off-putting uh, as, you, as you look at it. Uh, but it, brief catch does a couple of things. One is it, it gives a document an overall score for things like how well it engages with readers and how it's, its concision and readability and its flow and cohesiveness and that sort of thing. Uh, and a uh, uh, little bit to my surprise, given uh, given the uh, not not just the subject matter, but the fact that there's a whole lot of uh, citations to archaic uh, law from from uh, centuries ago and everything else, the uh, brief catch uh, scored it fairly well. Uh, it it got way above average scores in, in just about every category for its overall writing. Um, but then when you go through the editing suggestions, I mean, they tend to be there are a lot of good suggestions, but they tend to be kind of very mundane stuff uh, that that, uh, you know, uh, it would help uh, anybody writing uh, writing a, a brief, but uh, it, it doesn't shed any any kind of uh, insight uh, uh, or, or light on, on the opinion in any uh, substantive way. Uh, it, it really is a pure. Uh, 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 you know, software that just purely offers these suggestions. Uh, but I mean, there were a couple of places where it was it was a, almost kind of striking. I thought in its uh, uh, some of the comments it made, there was uh, probably the 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 most uh, striking one was there was a, a point in the opinion in which uh, uh, Alito is talking about. Uh, the analysis of, of determining whether a regulation, quote, pre presents a substantial obstacle to women. It goes on to say that a court needs to know which set of women it should have in mind and how many of the women are in this set find the obstacle substantial. But this phrase, brief catch picked up on this phrase, presents a substantial obstacle to women. And I thought it was really interesting because it presented this whole list of alternative ways of phrasing that, which were phrases like hinders women, inhibits women, impedes women, impairs women, thwarts women, foils women, which of course it kind of goes to the, the very heart of the criticism of this opinion and certainly not anything that Alito were he using uh, brief catch would, would probably want to adopt any of those phrases because uh, if anything, they are counterproductive, I think, to the, uh, to the, to the certainly the, the position he's trying to put forth uh, in this case. So, so, I mean, the bottom line was, you know, it, 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 there's nothing, uh, it, it does a good job. It's, it's a useful tool, uh, but uh, putting it against a controversial opinion doesn't really do anything other than it, anything different than it would do putting against any piece of legal writing. But it was kind of fun to do anyway. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because it's kind of like, well, you know, I mean, obviously with the, you know, like just reading, I mean, the first time we, you know, most people write the opinion and whatnot, it's, Obviously, it comes across as a very strong, very strident, very sweeping opinion, just with the way it overrules Rowan says it was wrongly decided from the beginning and blah, blah, blah. But then you kind of look at all the ways, all the times, at, at least brief catch, you know, caught like the pat, like passive voice, use a passive voice or, you know, use of like, you know, where maybe like the language could have been written stronger or, you know, I think there was one that was kind of like, uh, 
um, uh, what was it? Uh, has come to light or something like that, and and and, 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 and you know, like like you're like, oh, well, you know, you could have used a more vivid phrase there. So I, I guess it was interesting to kind of see like sort of like so so there are hedges in some places, but probably not in, like any any area that would like make it a substantive thing. But um, but it was just kind of interesting, just 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 just, just a sort of like a writing exercise, kind of like well, we all assume that it was a, well, well, we all consider it to be a strongly written opinion just because of the content of it, but. Then you kind of look at all the all those instances, kind of like, oh well, he hedges here and hedges there. So I, 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 I thought it was interesting from that from that aspect. Yeah, I always, some, I always yeah, found ahead. it I always found it interesting when when I was using some of these tools and writing briefs. You know, and he would I would quote language from an opinion, and you know, inevitably the whatever tool I was using would find that quote and just, and just butcher it. And this is horrible. Don't use this. Don't say that wrong language, passive voice, use better language, ambiguous, too many words. <laughs> and just would go, well, yeah, that's, that's pretty much our judiciary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's also interesting because there are a couple points where, uh, Again, brief catch would make a suggestion like 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 Victor said, maybe it is pointing out passive voice or something. And um, and you just wonder what the thought process was, because you have to believe that they're they're thinking very carefully about the wording here. Right. I mean, you have to you have they know this is going to be, you know, one of probably, you know, one of the most controversial opinions ever uh, that they're they're walking on eggshells here in terms of overturning established precedent. Uh, and and they're 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 discussing an issue that's that's you know one of the most controversial and hot button issues in the country. So you, in the country. So you know there he's got to be thinking about the wording very carefully. And there are these places where like like he'll use the passive voice, which is you know one of the features of the passive voice is you're kind of not attributing an action to an actor, uh, and uh, uh, that's got to be intentional in some ways, and and uh, uh, so it, it it is it is interesting. Um, according to Ross Guberman, the the founder, uh, of, he says several Supreme Court justices actually use it, uh, use the product. So we have no idea whether uh, Alito might well have already run his uh, his draft through uh, brief catch even before I got to it. But well, the passive voice issue is particularly interesting because. That's a tool to be used, and whether they'd use it intentionally or not, it like removes response. It puts yeah. a buffer between someone and the responsibility for action. Exactly. You know, I hit the dog, or the dog was hit by me. You know, it's like the dog just happened to get hit, and I was there. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's this way of sort of removing yourself from responsibility or distancing yourself from the consequences of your actions, and so. It could have was either intentional or it could have even been like a subconscious thing where they're distancing themselves from the actual consequences or yeah. um you know what the effects this is going to have on women instead it becomes this it's a way of like also making the object um further removed from you putting distance between you and the object too you know so there's a lot of things that may have actually been intentionally or possibly subconsciously being done because people do that though when they're trying to talk about something complicated but they don't want to take responsibility for what they're saying they'll use passive voice too and there can also just be a way to break sentences up too sometimes it's because when i run my writing through um grammarly it hates the passive voice but sometimes if you don't use the passive voice every sentence starts off with this is that this is the other so when you flip the sentence around it just makes everything run more smoothly it's like an advanced level of writing in my opinion sometimes 
So yeah, I would agree. With, I would agree with you. And I use Grammarly too. And that, that you know, a lot of times it's, it hits me for the passive voice, and I just kind of. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't figure out a better way to say it. And I don't have time to mess with it. So that's, it's, it's just going to be passive. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I Grandma. stopped using Grammarly because I felt like it was, I mean, I think, I think, you know, after, once you start writing, if you write frequently, uh, you do develop a voice and uh, some of these tools aren't friendly to those voices you develop uh, right. and, and they they, can, they tend to make a lot of the same suggestions over and over again that are very rote mechanical suggestions and you know once you know once you get to a certain proficiency in terms of writing you know all the stuff and you're you're kind of making the decision as you write uh, not to do something a certain way or to do something a certain way and uh, i found grammarly was just i was just ignoring almost everything it suggested and i gave up on it um, I, but I, i've been you know, I've been using the Hemingway editor, which is really good for I'll me because because I tend to I tend to write really long sentences, and you know that that's as the name would suggest Hemingway editor. It's like no <laughs> sentence is too long; it's in red, you know. And it, and it but it's been really helpful to me because I I do have a tendency to run on with sentences that need to be broken up into shorter shorter thoughts. Yeah, the period I, is I, your friend. I agree; they can definitely remove the voice, but. I like the backup, like I leave out like two and uh, and like all these little words that you don't see when you skim through something. And uh, that's what I really appreciate about it more than anything. And sometimes things do sound better in an active voice than a passive voice. And sometimes you, um, I think when you write a lot, you fall into certain writing patterns too. Turns of mm -hmm. phrases that you always use or ways to connect one sentence to the other. And sometimes it helps to have like a, an, a, a second eye to break it up a teeny bit. So I yeah, I like. Can. I have to use Grammarly because I could never remember if the quote goes after the period or the quote goes before the periods. So, but for Grammarly, I'd had, I'd get it wrong every time. <laughs> of course, a lot of that stuff there isn't even a right answer. I mean, every other different various style books disagree on a lot of these things. But well, then that reminds me that there's a thing in Hemingway where it it will say, "Do you want to use one space after the period or two? One. <laughs> <laughs> why are you giving me this option <laughs> yeah hey before we wrap up i'm going to put in a plug for one other story i did this week i won't talk about it but just uh, i thought it was really interesting uh i i had uh, had this occasion to sit down with three people who are long time sort of trailblazers in the profession of law of the of, of docketing within a law firm which honestly is something i hardly knew anything about and i had this like long conversation with them. i was going to write a i was going to write a story about it and then after after we i happened to record the conversation and looking back at the recording i thought you know what i'm just going to make a transcript of this because it was such an interesting conversation so uh but i didn't record it for a podcast which i should have done but uh uh so i just put the link in that but uh you know they, they even they call themselves the mystery department in a law firm but it, it's it, it's an interesting job within a law firm uh that's you know responsible for basically tracking all the litigation uh and intellectual property uh filings and and uh and uh, calendars and all of that uh a very tech focused job you know very technical job obviously in chart most usually in charge of all the e-filing and everything like that for a law firm uh and yet something I, I, it just doesn't get talked about a lot um and so uh if you're at all curious about what docketing professionals do check it out Dan O'Day says that's a great article because he knows what docketing <laughs> professionals do because he deals with them all the time, I'm sure. But anyway, 
and see, we didn't think we'd have enough to talk about for an hour, and here we are, running out and of time. We we didn't even have Joe with us, so you we know. didn't even have Joe <laughs> or Bourbon. So. <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't speak for you, Steve. You probably you're in you. You know, bourbon is like grows on trees or something. Right? That's right. That's the only, only thing we drink. Then you <laughs> I think those bottles no, hanging even, from the we don't even trees. drink water. It's just always <laughs> the official state. Just the official state drink. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, that does it for this week. I think uh, again, happy birthday, Nikki, and happy Joy birthday, and Nikki. Happy birthday. Oh, thanks Be so much. All back here next week. I know. So long. Have a good okay. weekend, everyone. Bye, everyone.